0: The shortest distance between the United Kingdom and mainland Europe is only 33.3 kilometers, from South Forland to Cap Griné, close to Calais. By train, it only takes 122 minutes to travel from Brussels to London, but how close are we really? In the aftermath of the Brexit, I embark on a journey with rhys to find out. I am your host David Loder, and this is 33.3 kilometers. Hi, everyone, and welcome to 33.3 kilometers. Today, I'm joined again by my fellow co-host, Rhys Edmonds, the smartest man in the world. Today, we're going to talk about one of our favorite topics, about electoral systems. We're going to compare the UK electoral system with the Dutch one, and maybe even venture into some other European uh, systems. Rhys, let's start this off with the UK system. When did the Vikings and the priests stop fighting? and? <laughs> Did consensus sort of start uh, being a a way to decide things?
1: Well, we've had parliaments uh, in this country since the 13th century. They started as a group of commoners who would advise the king. But at first, of course, they were initially quite sporadic. And it took many centuries and many rather brutal civil wars to have the system that we have today, where we have a monarchy, but we have a parliament which is continually in session, which can't be shut down. And it's also taken a very long time for us to develop something approximating democracy. It can be argued whether we indeed have full democracy today. Um, but for many centuries, we had a very unfair, unrepresentative electoral system. We had a very funny system called um, the Rotten Boroughs. The way Parliament works, and the way it still still works today, is the country is divided up into um, a number of geographical areas, which we call constituencies. They're sometimes called seats, because um, MPs who represent them, members of Parliament who represent these constituencies, sit on seats in Parliament. Although in reality, there aren't actually enough seats for them to sit in. But That's another question. In the past, however, before the Great Reform Act of 1832, these constituencies weren't particularly equally sized. In fact, um, many of them didn't have any people living in them at all. And the most famous one was a place called Old Serum in Wiltshire. It was an abandoned medieval town. It was actually just a green hill, and there was this sort of abandoned um, medieval city on it. And this, despite the fact no one lived here, sort of quite comfortably sent um, two MPs to the Parliament of Westminster for several hundred years. And this was at the same time as major cities like Birmingham, Manchester didn't have any parliamentary representation at all, but Old old Serum just allowed um, the local aristocrat to to send someone to Parliament on behalf of this empty parliamentary seat.
0: What's the reason for this particular system? Because this first-past-the-post, as as it's called, um, is very different, for example, from the direct representation that you have in the Netherlands, where there is a certain threshold of votes. This is not in any way determined geographically or where you're from. There's just a threshold, which is 0.67%, the lowest in Europe. If you pass that, you get a seat to your party. And for every 0.67% of the votes, you get another seat. What is the reason that the UK chose for this first past the post? Because it leads to these strange situations. I remember a while back during elections where the extreme right-wing party, UKIP and yeah. the SNP, would have the same amount of seats in the parliament, whereas UKIP had, I think, 11 times more votes in absolute terms. Isn't it strange that in a country that is so much centrally governed, mm. you have a party that has much more votes in absolute terms
1: having so much less seats? Yes, it is really very unfair, as you outlined. I mean, parties can get huge number of votes, millions of votes across the country, like you said, UKIP, in the 2015 election, won, I think, 13% of the vote and received one, seat out of 650 in Parliament. And that was just because their votes were badly distributed. So if you, if you win lots of votes in every constituency, but just, just not quite enough to win a constituency, you get nothing. Whereas, as you say, the SNP, um, they only stood in a few constituencies. They only stood in the constituencies in Scotland because they got lots of votes just, just in those places. Um, they won lots of seats. So yes, it's very unfair and um, it doesn't mirror the political diversity of the country. And that doesn't mean we have to go the whole Dutch hog doesn't mean we have to abolish um, <laughs> geographical representation entirely, because there are many. Like, like I say, most countries in Europe combine some element of geography with some element of proportionality.
0: And you're right that it's not always something to envy to have the Dutch direct representational system, where zero point sixty-seven percent is enough to get you into parliament. Vis-a-vis, for example, Belgium and Germany, uh, threshold is five percent. Yes, so it's a big difference, and you see that because. We have 17 parties since the elections in March 2021, 17 different parties, which makes it extremely difficult, of course, to govern and also to find a, a governing coalition. Um, and these parties include, to just give a bit of a flavor, the 50-plus party. We have the, and I have to say this correctly, <laughs> the Farmer Citizens Movement got a seat for the first time which was formed from protests against the current uh, policies to make uh, the farming in the Netherlands more sustainable. Mm. And this led to a one woman party who the first day she went to the parliament, she came in a tractor and just parked it in the middle of the square in front of the parliament. We have a party that uh, now has uh, many more seats, but that once started with, as one of the election uh, promises was, to put a piano in the parliament. Wow, they got elected.
1: That's a good good idea. They're not one already.
0: That was their only good idea, because uh, (laughs) uh, otherwise they are rather extreme right-wing and and critical about anything (laughs) European immigration. But the piano was was a nice touch. (laughs) We even had once a party which is not in the parliament uh, right now. We have an animal party. Um, So yeah, a lot, and then there's a lot of parties parties that are called, for example, Yes Twenty One. Um, all sorts of names that make you wonder a party that's called Think uh, it's very difficult to figure out what they stand for, uh, what they think but somehow they managed to capture a niche of the Dutch society and with 0.67% that's percent—that's—that's uh, never uh, difficult um,
1: It should be said part... that these parties do represent a certain number of people in the country
0: no, I they think so right
1: to be represented.
0: I mean this is of course always something and, and we will talk about this that you have a certain political establishment, mm. parties that people know, that stand for certain things people know. But especially nowadays, uh, let alone uh, during times of crisis, people want a new voice, something <laughs> new. And if the threshold is so low to start a new party, to have an outspoken voice, you can imagine that, that there's always a group of people that feels attracted to that. Yeah, um, But you get into a diff- difficult situation where you have a lot of parties that have only one issue. Uh, I told you 50 plus party, you have an animals party that is slowly becoming more grounded in the political tradition, Um, a farmers party and and, and the list goes on. Um, We had once a party that is colloquially called the pedophile party, that was not their real name, Um, but their main political stance, stances included that the age of consent for uh, sexual activities should be lower to 12 that you should be able to walk outside naked and that uh, soft and hard work should be legalized. As you can imagine, this party uh, was maybe loved by a group of people even less than (laughs) 0.67%. And they didn't get enough signatures because they were beaten up when they were trying to ask for those uh, on the streets. But I've now given a good overview of the, the rather ridiculous parties that you have in the Netherlands. But how does this work in the UK? Because you have two big parties and then a few slightly smaller parties often regionally organized. Why is there not more competition? What stops new parties from entering the political arena?
1: It's to do with the electoral system that we have, this so-called first-past-the-post. It means that it's very hard for a new party to gain ground, one that doesn't have the um, strength already in the constituencies, in the geographical areas. So even, even a sort of populist right-wing party like UKIP, which won millions of votes, all over the country still you know still has faded away now it's essentially disappeared simply because it couldn't break through the electoral system that we had at only one one seat in the country there was only one seat in which their candidate was able to get a plurality of um, votes so yeah these these two parties are supported by the electoral system the conservative party and the labor party the big two and they prop each other up people tend to vote for one and because they dislike the other and um, ever since the war the end of the the second world war with one exception one big exception we've only had either conservative or labor governments this would be unheard of in continental countries we haven't we haven't had coalitions we've had governments purely of one party so they've only ever had a minority of the vote in the country but they've always governed as a majority they've always had all the power for themselves and it's actually a little worse than that because I say it's either the conservative or the labor party in reality it's it's usually the conservative party they tend to win Um, they're the most successful party in the Western world. They've been around since about 1830 and they've been in power almost all of the time um, since then, some exception.
0: Did they modernize their party uh, sufficiently? How do they ensure that they keep getting the votes while being such a a political establishment?
1: They're very good at appealing to to the electorate at a particular moment in time. So for instance, um, in the 19th century, it was expected that this conservative party would, would die out because it was associated with um, big landowners, the kind of people who would own seats in Parliament and buy MPs to represent them in Parliament, the, the bottom borough system, and who wouldn't, they would, would be expected, wouldn't have much support among um, the working class. So it was expected that as soon as the working class were allowed to vote, the Conservative Party would die away because they were associated with big landowners. That actually wasn't the case at all. Um, they, I mean, they changed. They um, became supportive of, of, of welfare programmes and they were able to appeal to, um, to, to patriotism an empire and monarchy, and these things um, were quite attractive to the working class. And then, um, after the Second World War, when the sort of socialist welfare state um, arose, they were able to, to, to maintain power by accommodating themselves to some aspects of this, of this socialist system, this welfare state. And then, in the 1970s, when this welfare state, the census began to fall apart, um, they were able to put themselves on the side of, of neoliberal capitalism um, and gain lots of support that way. And now, perhaps, it's argued the pendulum is changing again. And they're becoming more statist, and they're they're staying in power. That way. it's it's a good bridge to
0: to our next topic, where you see that politicians in need often reach for an instrument that arguably is a uh, divisive, that that can seem like a solution but end up like a curse, as as you very well know in the UK, and that's yeah. uh, direct democracy, the oh. idea of a referendum, which many different European countries, but also of course uh, other countries in the world, have been flirting with. Often political parties that want more support by promising a bigger say to their constituencies, um, but that, that doesn't always uh, end well. So what is the current referendum legislation in the UK, uh, which, which I mean, who can start a referendum and,
1: and what are the rules? Has it been changed since Brexit or is it still the same? The problem with the UK, um, as in many things, we don't have any rules. Uh, we don't have a constitution. It's is a total free-for-all. There are no rules about wh- when we have referendums. We've, we've only had a couple, and only in very recent years. And simply if a political party decides it's a useful thing to do, they organise one. We've, had, um, we've only had three um, UK-wide referendums. Two have been on Europe, one to stay in, one to leave. Um, so it's mainly Europe. Uh, is, is the one people want to have referendums on. And we also have one on changing the voting system um, to, a, to a, in my view, a fairer, more proportional voting system, which unfortunately was defeated in 2011. So yeah, it's a total free-for-all, totally random. But it's always initiated by political parties. By the government, yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Because this is one of the differences in referendum legislation and something that the Netherlands struggled with, that once we got our referendum legislation a few years back, it was one of the few in Europe that was not government initiated. So a referendum could be uh, initiated by getting a few hundred thousand of votes. So a very small amount. I think the, the request for the referendum was 400,000 votes. And then you yeah. needed to get uh, uh, over a million to actually have the referendum uh, organized. But as you can imagine, uh, that leaves even less political control of what the referendum is about and what to do with it than, uh, than the British uh, system. So the difficulty here was as well, that because ne- next to the fact who initiates the referendum, you have to question when is it binding or not? And that's something that has been hugely debated. Um, The Dutch referendum was not binding, which, of course, came from the idea, if citizens can initiate it, we at least need to have a trick up our sleeve that we can always say, this is ridiculous, we're not doing this. Now, the sad thing is that in modern day politics, if you have a a referendum result from a large group of your citizens, just saying, no, we're not doing that uh, can, can... basically result political suicide. So that has been a discussion. Is the non-binding referendum, is that actually a thing? Can you have that without well, exactly. uh, uh, committing political suicide?
1: I mean, that's the issue that we have too, because the Brexit referendum wasn't binding. And some MPs did vote against Brexit, did try to stop Brexit from happening. But the, the pro-Brexit people made the moral argument that because the people had voted to leave, even if the referendum wasn't legally binding, Brexit had to happen. The people have said so.
0: Yeah, this is the this is the tricky part, and that becomes even trickier with the, the the most famous Dutch referendum of recent years, which also led us or made us get rid of the referendum legislation directly afterwards. Was a referendum on the association agreement with Ukraine, right? So, the, some listeners might have lost me there when I said it. So, the European association agreement with Ukraine. You can imagine that um, we had a, a minimum campaign riddled with confusion. No one precisely knew what it meant. A lot of people thought this meant that now Ukraine would enter the internal market and they had to fear for their jobs because of an influx of Ukrainian migration, uh, which has nothing to do with the association agreement. Uh, People were all confused whether this had something to do with European membership. And it just showed that having direct democracy for all its value could be very difficult if you talk about very specialist um, topics. And whether brexit was a specialist topic or not is of course up for uh, yeah. up for debate but uh, the threshold for this referendum was uh 30 uh, of the population needed to uh, uh to vote so if yeah. you take the then the positive amount sixteen percent of the total population had to vote either yes or no and then you would have a result and there's some very legit legitimate questions on how democratic this is wow. at least in the uk i think it was 50 percent uh, That really needed to have
1: a. Well, we had no threshold. No No rules. No, no. Um, The government decided not to have a threshold. As it happened, it had quite a high turnout. So the turnout was certainly high, but the margin of victory for the Leave campaign was very small. It was 52 48. Whether one thinks 52 48 is a good mandate for constitutional change is another question.
0: That's a a very, very good question. How would you say that the mindset and the idea of uh, referenda and of having your direct say has changed after Brexit. Have people become more critical about it? Did people think it was a great experience and want more?
1: I, I rather fear it's become more and more popular. will become more and more popular as time, time goes on. I was, I think this, this actually is relevant to um, what we were just saying about how the Conservative Party is, is completely unscrupulous. It simply goes where the electorate is. I mean, a Conservative Party should not be adopting this sort of Jacobin-type rhetoric about how the will of the people, the volonté générale, will sweep everything before it. That's of course exactly what they were doing. Any um, roadblock that was um, imposed to Brexit by people who worried about the economy, um, about trade, um, was simply swept aside by, by these pro-Brexit conservatives on the basis that the people had spoken, a mandate had been given through through a referendum um, for, for, for leave. And I rather fear when when that um, is injected into politics, it's very hard. To to, to row back on it and um, I mean the other reason why Boris Johnson won other than the unpopularity of the very left wing Jeremy Corbyn was that he he, he portrayed himself as a representative of this great general democratic will for Brexit he said his mission was to get Brexit done whereas the Labour Party were equivocating much more on the Brexit issue whereas he was very clearly there to deliver on the referendum result as he perceived it by, by getting out of the European Union and he did that there you go. We're stuck. We're stuck with it now. I fear there'll be more than other things.
0: Let's move um, into Westminster or or in the Dutch Tweede Kamer and uh, look a bit at the different rituals and 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 ways that the uh, politics are being conducted. One thing you said that you moved uh, from. I think you said the 13th century. Uh, you you moved onward to, to a respectable democracy. Well, many people when they look at Westminster. They don't see too much of respect. They mostly see <laughs> two screaming sides. Indeed, yes. And a speaker that, that doesn't really stop that, but ignites it. Can you explain where this tradition comes from and, and, and why they always scream at one another? Why we have two sides? I mean, that's clear, but they could, they could, nicely, they could nicely consult each other and,
1: and ask, ask
0: each other questions, right?
1: No, no, that, 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 that would be no fun. Um, <laughs> the idea is one, one side is the government. Um, that's the side on the right of the speaker. And one side is the opposition. And they're two sword lengths apart. So although you think it's so terrible that they're screaming to each other, we consider it quite a blessing that they're not actually fighting. And the reason for this is because they're, they're particularly separated. Um, so they can't, they can't have duels with their swords. And the other reason why they can't have duels with their swords is because when you're a new MP and you arrive in Parliament, and there's a little, cloak, a little peg where you put all your belongings and a little hook for your sword. Um, <laughs> so, so the idea is, you know, you, you put your sword away by the time you get there, um, and you duel instead um, through words. But I mean, the other reason why it's also so loud is because it's such a small room. You don't necessarily realise that on television. But when you get there, it's really tiny. There's 650 MPs in the British Parliament, and there's not nearly enough seats for them. They all sort of, they all sort of cram, cram in there. Um, and at Prime Minister's questions, which is once a week, they hear the Prime Minister and they hear the Leader of the Opposition, and they get quite, um, quite impassioned. So They make a lot of noise. And the Speaker who presides over debates, he sits in the big chair at the front, he has to calm them down by shouting, order! Order! The current <laughs> one is Northern, so he's like, order! order. <laughs>
0: this was literally the the, the main news uh, that reached the Netherlands during the entire Brexit debate. Oh. Uh, we well, saw he loved it. Repeating uh, images and, and sound bites of the speaker even uh, worse he was invited to two dutch political talk shows yes and he came and they, they spoke for hours on, on on why he spoke about order about his dog so yeah the entertainment value of british politics
1: is i think uh, unquestionable i mean he, he loved his job he he, he he adored it and he loved he was obviously very clever and very eloquent and he loved um, telling people off in, in sort of, in, in very witty ways, you say, "I need no assistance for mere, mere government minister." Be quiet, man! It's like that. <laughs> Wonderful, but but he, he's gone now. He's retired. Can I tell you some more funny things about the position of the Speaker? Absolutely. Yeah. So, so what, once upon a time, um, the position of the Speaker um, was a very dangerous job to have because you're representative of the House of Commons. This is this is the lower house of Parliament, where the important um, work of government happens generally. Um, you were the representative of the um, House of Commons against the Crown. So, if you need, in, in the old days, if you got on the wrong side of the Crown, I mean, you could be for it. You were in, in serious trouble. So often, speakers wouldn't want to do it. They would be compelled into the job. And because of that, um, after every election, the speaker is elected by acclamation. He's shouted into the job. The MPs just shout, "Ah!" and that means that means the speaker gets in. Um, and um, but you're not meant you're not meant to want to have the job. Um, so the idea is MPs drag you. They, they they have to sort of pick you up, and <laughs> a little like a little like if you've had too much to drink. Um, they drag you from your seat to the Speaker's chair um, to show your reluctance to take office um, and preside over debate. I really don't envy the work
0: of the Speaker, because you could, of course, say, hey, listen, you have only one seat in the Parliament. You uh, should uh, be silent, but you can't, because that would immediately reach the, the media and the right of small parties to have a say and to organize a debate is... is, is...
1: Sadly, in in our parliament, the the small parties don't have that right. Only the government Ah, has that right. We have things called opposition days. So very occasionally, the opposition, the Labour Party, gets a chance to choose a motion, but that's very rare.
0: Sounds like a national holiday where
1: where the opposition
0: uh, can take their gags off and and speak. (laughs) So how often does it happen if you have a one-party government? Hmm. That, that quite strongly controls uh, what happens. How often does yeah. it happen that a proposal
1: from the government isn't turned down by Parliament? I'm very rarely, indeed. But then I, I'm not sure, I don't think this government's been defeated in Parliament since, since it took office in 2019. It's quite rare that happens. It happened a lot during Brexit, but during the Brexit process, that was a particularly unusual time. And the government didn't have a majority in Parliament, it relied on the support. Um, of, of of a small party um, for, for the votes, but that's very very rare. Yeah, generally speaking, they 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 never lose. really. And on the on the opposition days, the opposition just sort of pass some joke motion, which is in which they say how terrible the government is, and, they lo- and then lose. Um, <laughs> if, if if the government bothers to turn up, they they lose. This is yeah. this is something that actually
0: gets me gets me a bit riled up uh, in the. Netherlands, which is the idea of party discipline. Yes. This is extremely strong in the Netherlands. So if right. you would vote against your party line, yeah. that would make the news. That is generally seen as as a scandal, which of course makes the whole political work and going utterly predictable and takes away what you could argue in a, in a representative democracy where people vote on a person, not on a party, makes this very problematic. And, and, and some argue... That uh, This is also the reason why people have felt very distanced from politics, because you vote on a person, but in the end, it is just a party line that is always followed. Yeah, very, very problematic and very strong in the Netherlands. How is that in the uh, UK?
1: It's pretty true here as well. We have these people called whips, mm-hmm. and they're employed by the political parties. They offer rewards and punishments um, to the fellow MPs to keep, to keep them in line. And generally speaking, they do so. Occasionally, some rebel. And... Generally speaking, they're not, they're not expelled from the party, generally speaking, if they do rebel. Um, but it's, it's rare that they do.
0: I mean, I mean, that's the difference, of course, because as it is so easy to start a new political party and as people are voted into Parliament uh, and the Senate under no. individual title, uh, you have it a lot that uh, after every governing period, we have some individual members of Parliament that broke off from the party, that changed. Right. Most recently, we had the, uh, the rather funny situation where uh, the party that became the biggest in the senate which was the same party that uh, that moved the piano into the parliament um, <laughs> had an internal crisis which the majority of the party breaking away and some of them started a new party which means that the new party that just started was already the largest party in our senate without ever having been elected as a party
1: oh okay and that's wow. how quick
0: it can go and you see this uh, this often or different parties right. would break away People that join together in, in yet another uh, oh. utterly <laughs> problematic, basically that,
1: doomed uh, coalition, but this happens a lot. Doesn't really in the UK. The party system is much more rigid. People tend to stick to their parties for life. It's, it's their meal ticket. Is the only way they it's the only way they're going to keep their seats is by sticking with their party. So
0: we so, talking about sticking to your party. I've heard through the grapevines that you had yes. a small political career yourself.
1: Yes, I was a candidate. Um, not for Westminster, unfortunately, but for a much lower level, for local government, the county council, which governed the county of Staffordshire. Um, I was a candidate for these elections in 2013, eight years ago, at the age of 18. I was a fresh-faced young man. And I was a candidate (laughs) for the Eccleshaw Division of Staffordshire County Council, which consisted of 10,000 voters, um, of whom we get about 30% turnout. So about 3,000 of them turn out. And the winning candidate got... I think over 2,000 votes, maybe 1,500. The second candidate got about 1,000 votes. I got 185. Well, you were close. 6% of the votes. Very (laughs) close. Um, (laughs) A few more weeks of campaigning, and I'd have smashed it. If if Um, this
0: podcast had already existed, you would have reached the right crowd, Reese.
1: Maybe maybe that was a problem, yes. Lack of appeal to the electorate. Um, I mean, I, I probably did about as well as my party would naturally <laughs> in that area. Six percent sounded about right.
0: I mean, after having hear, heard your strong opinions on monarchy and your own monarchy in the previous episode, I think your chances of political fame have diminished drastically
1: in the UK. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I did I tell you what my campaign was about? Yeah, um, I me. had one one core message, and that it was that um, rural roads were being very much neglected in the area compared to. Um, Compared to urban roads, and I said that only a few million are being spent on rural roads, which is not nearly enough, that they're damaged. Um, and I was aghast at the fact that um, at the offices of this county council, they have huge offices in our local town, Stafford, built at vast expense, um, and they've erected outside them these huge granite sculptor- sculptures in the shape of balls, sort of this sort of artistic feature. And in my um, election statement, I said how appalling it was that the government were wasting money on these Ozymandian granite balls <laughs> when rural roads were in dire need of repair. If you have to assess how many
0: of your local constituents understood the adjective that you just used in front of these uh, big balls.
1: Ozymandian? Do you know what yes. Ozymandian means? It's a reference to a poem by, um, by Shelley <laughs> in the early 90s. 19- I think this answers and the, my question. <laughs> in the early 19th century. And it's about a traveler who travels to Egypt. I met a traveler from an antique land who said two vast and trunkless legs of stone stand in the desert. Well, I won't give you the whole poem, but anyway, he's, he's sort of standing in the desert um, and he sees a twisted visage whose frown and wrinkled lips and sneer of cold command. Something, something about it, a visage. And then um, beneath, on the pedestal, beneath the um, sculpture, Says, My name is Ozymandias, King of Kings. Look on my works, ye mighty, and despair. So it's um, a meditation on the impermanence of power and the delusions of grandeur that temporal rulers have. They build these vast edifices which are only going to fade away in time, which only are monuments to their folly. Like, like Staffordshire County Council. <laughs> <laughs> Which is
0: absolutely beautiful, but let me repeat my question. How many no. of your constituents do you think got this
1: reference? I think 6%. Oh, that's... that's a... <laughs> my, my electorate, maybe 185. That says a lot
0: about the, the educational level
1: in your no. constituency. No, I had, well, I had a campaign advisor. What campaign advisor? I, I, I discussed it with a guy at the office. Cause I was working <laughs> in a political job at the time. I was working for an MEP and um, he said, I said, is this okay? And he said, though, like Ozymandian, because it sounds complicated and vaguely expensive um, and fancy. But what he didn't want me to do is I wanted to refer to Eccleshaw, my village, um, by the female pronoun. I wanted to refer to it as she. Like I will defend her interests. I will stand up for her. And he said, he said Reese, no one has done that since about 1800. Maybe Paris. You can, you can refer to it as she. <laughs> But <laughs> no, no, no one, else. Really, referring um, to your
0: town as she, she is too conservative, yes. but throwing around Ozymandian from poems from Shelley is yeah. is progressive and and, and alluring <laughs> enough. I think
1: it's good you you changed your political advisor in the in the meantime. All right, <laughs> <laughs> oh, it was wonderful fun anyway, and it was really exciting because it was the first time I'd ever voted because I was only eighteen, mm. and I voted for myself. <laughs> seems seems fitting. The the one political.
0: Um, activity I, I participated in was the earlier mentioned referendum on the association agreement with Ukraine, which I found a very interesting um, experience because I went to different places in the country to give presentations to different types of groups, uh, which is very different from when you're used to always speak with, with your friends or with uh, in a business setting. Um, and I also noticed there for the first time the different political sentiments uh, that there are uh, concerning uh, Europe, because I will never forget that I walked into a room in a, in a rural town in the Netherlands, yeah. and a perfectly fine-looking, uh, friendly, older gentleman walks towards me. I'm a bit nervous. I'm young. I'm going to give my first presentation on a complex topic, trying to persuade people to do the right mm. thing. He walks up to me, and he says, I looked you up online, and I've, I, I've seen you worked for the European Union, mm. so I do not trust you. <laughs> oh, God. Yeah, And I remember standing there and thinking, how do, how do I come back from that? How do I start now? Yeah, And it, it really showed to me that the difficulty of that political life, yes. taking that you, you, you've you been to places, you've worked in places, you, and that the utter distrust that there can be on, on, on these kind of basic elements, not based on what you're saying, uh, for me was very uh, interesting, but also slightly demotivating to continue that uh that path in politics i'm not sure if the ozy mendian reference ever came back to haunt you but
1: <laughs> well it might now um <laughs> no, in all seriousness i know exactly how that feels i mean I've, I've campaigned a lot not just for myself i've campaigned for candidates from our party the lib dems and i've stood on a lot of doorsteps and i've been told that i'm i'm lying <laughs> That nothing nothing i say counts it's, it's, it's very demotivating yeah i had doors slammed in my face do you think this is nowadays an issue if you if you, if you look at
0: politics and in the Netherlands I think you can can make this point that the job of a politician has become so unattractive because of the media scrutiny uh, because of the general distrust of the way that you're being put through all sorts of uh, of, of of harassment and horrible situations online um and that all for uh, for for not too too high a salary compared to uh, the business uh, uh, world. Uh, how is that regarded in the UK? Is politics seen as an attractive career or is it really only the the power hungry or the people that really like the game that still feel attracted to this?
1: I think it's getting much the same way. I, honestly, when I was young, I wanted to be a politician when I was sort of 18, 19. And now it doesn't attract me at all. As you say, it's although it's paid a lot more than the average person, it's still relatively poorly paid compared to medicine, law, business, professions so on. Um, and compared and to get, what you have to so put much... in, of course, in terms of times,
0: in terms of your private life.
1: Yeah, you work really hard. You have to m- go commute all the time to London, unless you have a constituency that's very close to London, you have to travel all the time. And um, you get a lot of media scrutiny, and you, get, you just get so much abuse all the time, particularly online. I, I, I don't think I could cope with that, actually. I don't think I could cope with, with, with people telling me how terrible I was all the time. I think I'm too thin-skinned.
0: Which is a shame because you you will end up in a system where a lot of very capable and able people maybe uh, will not pursue that that path. I've I've always been a an advocate of the idea that we have to raise awareness and have to be more active, also in education, to yes. appreciate our politicians again. Yeah. To stop this idea that the the job of politician or the character of a politician necessarily is tied in with corruption or with. Mm. Uh, a power hunger, uh, which I think has a, 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 has gone a bit too far yeah uh, to make it a more respectable position again as it was uh, uh, arguably in the past mm. we we talked about uh, the rather clownesque party leaders of the biggest uh, political parties, but are there any other joke candidates uh, in the british political system
1: yes um so in in the british politics, um the party leader the Prime Minister is an MP. So at every election, he has to stand um, for election in a constituency. Um, And on election day, he has to travel to that constituency and wait for the result and then give a speech. And in Boris Johnson's case, he's MP for Uxbridge in the London suburbs. So he has to go there and and give a speech. And of course, the media um, follow him round. This is a really good opportunity for people who seek publicity to stand against him as his opponents in the constituency even if they get a pathetic amount of votes, like three votes or something, just so that they can appear on television in a silly costume and sort of make faces behind the prime minister as he does so. And in 2019, and Boris Johnson, who in some people's eyes is a joke candidate anyway, um, had this extraordinary array of um, joke candidates um, behind him, some of whom he acknowledged um, during, during his speech. Um, and um, he had this he had, well, a candidate dressed as Elmo. And he said, instead of, thank you to Elmo for running, running a great campaign against me. Um, but there was also a ra- rather difficult competition between two joke candidates, Lord Buckethead and Count <laughs> Binface, because Lord Buckethead had been a candidate against um, Theresa May in her constituency in 2017. You know, again, again, challenged the Prime Minister so he could get on television, and became a bit of c- celebrity. Um, he was a guy who wore a, um, or oh, essentially a bucket, indeed, over his head, hence the name Lord Buckethead. But unfortunately. He was actually a member of a, of a wider political party, which stands joke candidates in some places, called the Monster Raving Loony Party. And for some reason, he had a falling out with the Monster Raving Loony Party, and they took the Lord Buckethead brand away from him, and they gave it to someone else. So against Boris Johnson, there was another Lord Buckethead standing. But this guy, who frankly was much more interesting, he was actually quite an intelligent, eloquent man, quite witty, he studied classics at university, actually. Um, he um, he, he wanted, still wanted to stand. So he stood as a rival candidate, Count Binface. So you had Lord Buckethead and Count Binface both sort of competing, both against each other and also against Boris Johnson. And I, I was very much pro-Binface, I think you've got the impression. But unfortunately, Buckethead, I did get a few more votes than Binface. I think simply because the, the name was more familiar from, from the last election. But Binface was, was, was the real McCoy. He was the real Bucket, Buckethead. Yeah. Yeah. That's amazing. He would have got my vote.
0: This is this is precisely why we don't do this in the Netherlands, because with the, the low election threshold, this would mean yeah. that both Binface and Buckethead would be Got in the in. parliament.
1: <laughs> oh, God. Yeah.
0: Okay, Rhys. Okay. Um, and with that very optimistic view of British politics and knowing that there are some true visionaries, uh, whether yeah. it is Bucketface or Binface, um, we are at the end of this uh, week's episode. Thank you so much for uh, sharing these great stories. We are obliged to say, as we are law-abiding citizens with our heart in the right place, that uh, whenever you do get the chance to vote in elections, a vote. It is a right and a privilege. Uh, so yes. don't let it go to waste. Um, whether it's Buckethead, Pinface, or one of the more idiotic Dutch parties that somehow have mentioned to get into the political arena. Rhys, thank you so much for being here and see you next time. No problem, thank you.